This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Whom can you count on? I mean, who can you count on in this world really trust with an absolute, unflinching confidence? I mean, I think you, you know that we live in a really cynical time, <laughs> um, dominated by, by distrust. Um, people don't trust politicians, corporations, political parties, government, religion, religious leaders, media outlets, social media, and so forth. And I guess I would say, on many counts, for good reason, that we lack confidence in so many institutions uh, and so many individuals. But is there anything and is there anyone that remains absolutely rock-solid, trustworthy, and faithful, and unchanging? Scripture says God alone. That God alone is absolutely trustworthy. Of God the Father, James says that he is the one in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not even a shadow of change in God the Father. Of Christ, the Son, the Messiah, who shares the Father's essential nature, the author of Hebrews says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God alone is utterly, absolutely, completely immutable, unchanging, forever trustworthy. And we say, hallelujah, praise be to God that we can look to him. And that is glorious. But we also say, here's the problem, I change. (laughs) Here's the problem. What happens when I take the wrong turn? I know he won't. But I'll be honest, I know I will. What happens if I take the wrong direction? What happens if, I mean, I take really the wrong direction? <laughs> what, happen if, what happens if I um, separate myself? What happens if I sin? I mean, what happens if I sin badly? You know, it is inevitable. Let's be honest, it is inevitable. We will fail. We have failed. And we will fail again. And if our justification, our right standing before God, right? If our justification depended upon our performance to any degree, I'm talking about half of 1%. (laughs) If our right standing before God, if our ability to know that we live under the shield of his love and his mercy depends on our obedience to the law of God on any level, we 
are in deep trouble. <laughs> we have no basis for confidence, no basis for hope, no basis for assurance. And that's one reason why Paul so strongly responds to what was going on in these churches in Galatia. People have come along and they've said different things. They've said you must add to your faith obedience to the law of God to be absolutely sure that you are in the right with God. And that's why he is so strongly opposed to this false gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. Last week he he made very clear that the law cannot bring about the blessing of Abraham, the justifying righteousness that makes us right with God and leads to our salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The law cannot do that because no one can keep the law perfectly and the law demands, as I just read, that we, that we keep everything that is written in it. And so to seek to to seek to make yourself right before God by doing what the law commands you to do, even in addition to faith in Christ, even in the slightest way, is to come under the curse of the law because the law says cursed is everyone who doesn't keep everything that's written in the law. And that's what he made clear last week. And now in verses 15 through 18, he presents another corollary uh, uh, argument, if you would, as to why the law cannot bring about the blessing of Abraham. Because justification is based on promise, not law. And God gave the blessing to Abraham on the basis of promise, not on the basis of the law, which came so many centuries afterwards. Justification comes by promise, not by performance. It is the result of something God has done and given to his children freely by his grace, his mercy, his love. It is not something that we contribute to one iota, not an ounce. And so Paul stresses here in verses 15 through 18 the primacy, the priority of the promise as opposed to the law of Moses. The promise has not not only chronological priority, it does by 400 years, but beloved, it has theological primacy, promise is the basis upon which God gave to Abraham what he gave him. And promise is rooted in grace, not performance. So the main statement here is in verse 17. This is what I mean. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) The law which came 430 years afterward, after what? Verse 16, the promises that were made to Abraham. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The promise is not void because God made a covenant through Moses. And three very important words appear in these verses in this paragraph. Uh, Promise is one of them. Covenant 
is another one of them, depending on your translation, and inheritance. And they're all tied together very closely. Promise embedded in covenant, which leads to the inheritance. I think promise is maybe the key word here because he uses it six times in verses 15 through 22, and he uses the verb in verse 14, which we saw last week, in verse 19. He does use the word law many times also, and will continue to, but always in contrast to something, either to faith or to promise. So I think promise is the key idea here that Paul is now introducing, and what is he getting at? What is Paul stressing again? By now pointing to promise, he wants to drive home. He wants to drive home to the Galatian Christians who have been listening to this other teaching that that faith in Jesus is not enough. He wants to drive home to them and to you and me. He wants us to know that, that our relationship with God, should we have one with them if you're a Christian, you're in relation with God. That our relationship with God is based entirely completely on his grace on his initiative on his love it all begins with God where was Abraham he was living in the land of Ur he was what a moon worshiper a pagan and God calls him and Paul wants you to understand if you're a Christian that it began by his grace And you remain under his grace. And it will continue under his grace and his love. Grace, God's divine favor, right? His favor shown to ill-meriting, ill-deserving sinners. His divine favor. Grace is the only basis that there is for a promise that God is making. And it all originates with him. And this, as we as we stay in this book of Galatians, I'm hoping, I'm praying that it'll be for you what it was intended to be, which, and which it is for me, that this should just be sweet medicine to your soul. To soak, to bathe in the grace of God. Um, this is healing for people who are tired of trying to be good enough. It's medicine for the soul, for those who just wish they could be better. It's salve. It's peace for those raised in a perfectionist household where no matter what you did, you just never measured up. Never could meet that standard. Oh, so close sometimes, but never enough. This is is healing for those of you that are tired of faking it. When someone asks, how's it going? And you're tired of having to say, okay, (laughs) good. When in reality, you're, 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 you're struggling. This is medicine for those who have failed to respond rightly to trouble. 
failed to respond rightly to tension to problems. That's what this is all about, you see. Galatians is designed to be for like a cool, refreshing glass of water, like the, like the hymn that comes to our soul, marvelous grace, right? Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Isn't it good to know that? That we can't out-sin God's grace and love and mercy and patience and kindness, you know? If you're a Christian today, Paul is making clear to you that your relationship with God is rooted in the promise of God, not performance. And he tells us here three affirmations about about, uh, the promise of God. We'll look at them in a moment here. We'll get started in a moment. Three affirmations he makes here about the promise of of God. But I want to add something that uh, Pastor Steve Brown once said where he said, so much of the Christian life is not what we do, but how we perceive what we do. Was that enough? Was that good enough? How much better was that? What's God think of this? What do they think of this? And so forth. The message of Galatians, we learn, is the message of the entire Bible. Remember, we, two weeks ago we said, We need to keep learning to read the Bible as a book of promise, not a collection of moralisms. It is a narrative of the unfolding drama of God's gracious redemption of a fallen human race that is utterly ill-deserving. It is the unfolding story of God's gracious, loving plan And Paul is teaching us indirectly how to read the Bible. He reaches to Abraham, brings in Moses, and reaches Christ. My goodness, that spans the whole thing, doesn't it? This is how Paul reads it, as God's unfolding plan of salvation. And so now he begins to tell us about the promise of God, and he begins with an example. Look at verse 15. The first thing he tells us is that God's promises are unchangeable. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What is he saying in verse 15? What he's saying in verse 15 is this, God's promises, and I'm putting it in the plural because he does in verse 16, right? God's promises are unchangeable. They're unalterable. Now, the word covenant may be translated differently in your Bible. I'm not sure what you're carrying with you. It can mean will or, or last will and testament. It was used that way in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Uh, but in the Hebrew mindset, this, this term is translated covenant. And it's used primarily that way throughout 
the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I think the ESV has it right because as far as I could find, there was no record anywhere that I found from scholars that wills in, in, in the Greco-Roman culture couldn't be altered. But from the Hebrew mindset, from the biblical mindset, covenants in the ancient world to them were considered irrevocable. They were considered unchangeable, unalterable, unbreakable, right? And he says, no one annuls. That means sets aside a covenant as invalid. The same word he used in verse 21 of chapter 2. I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't set aside the grace of God. And here he said, no one sets aside, no one annuls. A, a, a covenant once it is ratified he uses the perfect tense once it's validated it's always validated right that's what he's saying and what's he saying he's saying that's the way we look at it as human beings right furthermore he says no one adds to it uh, he uses uh, a word that's the only time it appears in in the new testament in the bible it's it's a it's a very technical legal term I think we would say today, no one comes around and then adds a bunch of small print later. Once, it's, once the contract is done, it's done. And so what is Paul doing here? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if this is the way it's like between human beings, how much more so with God? <laughs> if we, look, we frown upon, we think it's wrong to change or add or cancel a human covenant, how much more so with God, right? He will not go back on his promise, his covenant. He will not renege on his covenant, nor will he add requirements. No small print that's going to come about later. That's not how God operates, he says. God's covenant is unchangeable, unalterable. And what is a covenant? A covenant is that binding chosen relationship that is entered into by people based on promises or commitments sealed with oaths and so forth and to what covenant is is Paul referring to well it's clear he's he's talking about he's talking about not the Noahic covenant or the Mosaic covenant he's talking about the covenant God made with this man called Abraham verse 16 right God's covenant with Abraham was is the foundational biblical covenant that becomes the the basis for God's unfolding plan of redemption it's been said that Genesis 1 through 11 is almost like the preface and then the real story starts what Genesis 12 Abraham and from there we have the unfolding plan of redemption moving on down through the Bible and so Paul is using this example to establish the priority of promise the priority of of the, of the covenant that God made with Abraham and, and its unchangeable nature and the promises that were embedded in that covenant. There's no changing or adding to the terms of that covenant. And so the question would be, well, what were the terms? <laughs> oh, what were the terms in the covenant that, were, that was made with Abraham? Was it conditional or was it unconditional, you see? And I'm here to say that the scripture says that the, the covenant God made with Abraham was rooted entirely in his grace. It was unconditional in that sense. God's the one who called him. God's the one who initiated it. 
Some weeks back, we, we looked at it briefly. I just, just remind you that Genesis 12 is the initial uh, call of Abe, uh, Abraham. And, and, and the covenant promises begin there, but God continues to reiterate them and, and, and clarify, expand in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, uh, Genesis 22. And what was the essence of what God promised Abraham by his grace? We said he promised, what he promised him could be summed up this way. He promised him people, he promised him place, and he promised them his presence. He said to people, You'll, your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. Your descendants. He promised him place, and he spoke to him specifically of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then he also promised him his presence, that he would be their God. They would be his people, right? He would dwell in their midst again. And, in the, and if when you understand that this is a narrative, as, as Paul reads it, you understand the hints and the illusions there. This is God's promise to restore what was lost in Eden, where he was our God and he was in our midst. And now through Abraham, through your descendants, uh, I will bring about a restoration of what was lost. When you read the Bible as a narrative, you begin to understand and make those connections, those illusions. So these were the promises that God said he would bring to pass. He would do so entirely by his grace. They would not be attained through anything that Abraham would ever do to earn them. And it was made clear in chapter 15 when God formally ratified the covenant. He made the promises in Genesis 12 where he called Abraham, but then he ratified that covenant in Genesis 15. And that's what's unalterable. Now, how did God ratify that covenant? We don't need to go back and read it all for the sake of time, but you remember what happened then? Back then, when people made a covenant, they didn't sign a bunch of pages, right? Over and over and over and over. Uh, what they did is they cut a covenant. And how did you cut a covenant? What was common was they would take an animal or animals. Now, listen to this. This is, just think through the implications, okay? They'd take an animal and cut it in half. Kings would do this. They would separate the pieces of the animal, then they would walk between them. And they were saying, in essence, let this be done to me if I don't keep my part of this covenant. Kings who conquered other kings would, would cut the animal, divide them in half, and, and, and most commonly, not the conquering king, but the conquered king would walk between the animal's and he's promising what? To be a servant. We will serve your, your leadership and your kingdom. And in Genesis 15, now Abraham knows that. That was ancient, uh, an ancient custom. This was not something out of the blue, right? So Abraham knows this. God calls Abraham, and Abraham says, how am I going to know this is going to happen? That you're going to fulfill your promise. I want you to take these animals, five different types of animals, some of them multiple, even a heifer. That's a big animal. So you got to picture Abraham for a moment having to deal with this. Okay, you think about it. I don't know if ever you've ever slaughtered an animal, you have you ever hunted, you you've done some some cleaning. I've done that. It's gory. It can't be gory. You're you're cutting. It's blood. Abraham's cutting these animals in half, and he's putting them over there, and he's thinking in his head. What's he thinking in his head? I okay. Pretty soon he's going to tell me what my part in this deal is, because <laughs> I ain't no king. He is. And God makes him wait the whole day. Boy, 
he said, the whole day, I imagine he's chewing on what is he going to make me do? It's taken him so long to say. <laughs> and he's chasing away animals that are coming, trying to eat the carcasses, this and that. And finally, it, Abraham's waiting to hear what's his part. And, and, and this glorious mystical thing takes place where Abraham starts falling asleep, going into sleep. And God appears, we're told that he walks through the animals as a smoking pot and this, and this, and this burning fire, flaming torch. And he alone walks in the midst of these animals. And then he says, I will bring these things about. I will do this and that. There is no what? There is no if you keep your end of the bargain because this is no bargain. (laughs) This is grace. This is mercy. This is love. This is divine favor reaching into someone's life. There's probably no clearer picture anywhere in the Bible of God committing himself, God binding himself by oath to to fulfill his word of salvation on the basis of his grace alone. Then that that vivid picture of what happened there, right, with Abraham. R.C. Sproul has a sermon on this in in which he said what God was saying when he walked between those animals, right, Normally we say, let, let this happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. God was saying, in essence, Leo, let my infinitude become finite. Let my immutability become mutable. If I don't, if I don't fulfill what I have promised to you, Abraham. Tremendous, huh? And the author of Hebrews picks up on this as a profound anchor for our souls that God is totally committed to fulfilling his promises to you if you're a Christian. Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. I will. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, that's all he did was what? Wait. <laughs> Abraham believed God and he waited. He obtained the promise. Now that's just referring to Isaac, not the whole fulfillment of it all. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. There's the human example. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? Us. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, what? The promise and the oath. (laughs) by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We, we who have fled for refuge, meaning to him, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ went. Tremendous. And so the first thing that Paul says by using this example 
is very clearly this. God's promise embedded in the covenant is unchangeable. There is no annulling it. There is no adding to it. That's the first thing he says. But to whom are these promises made? Whom is intended in the promises made to, to Abraham? And secondly, what he says in verse 16 is rather surprising. God's promises are received only through Christ. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, singular, or seed, singular, who is Christ. Very interesting what Paul says here. This is how he reads the Bible. The word offspring, the term offspring or seed is what's called a collective singular, meaning it's singular in its form, but it can, depending on the context, refer to a group. But as to its grammar, right, it's, it's singular in its form. Like family can refer to one person or it can refer to the whole group, the whole family in English, right? But Paul, Paul fully understands this because he uses the same word referring to the plural in verse 29 of chapter 3. Look down, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. He's, he's thinking plural there. But he focuses on the singular when he reads the book of Genesis. The promises that were made to the seed of Abraham appears in the singular form. And seed is one of those key words that stretches across the Bible once again. When you know the Bible as a a developing storyline, you catch the illusions of what is happening here, you see. Seed is a word that reaches back to the very beginning of creation and the fall of man in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, masculine singular, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Later we trace that seed, the seed of Noah, the seed of Abraham, singular, then the seed of David, and so forth. And Paul reads the Bible, and having the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and having met Jesus himself, he says that singular seed had a collective of people in mind, but its focus finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus in the Christ, in the Messiah. He is the promised seed. And therefore, only Christ can inherit the fullness of those promises and those who are united to him. As we heard Tom pray already in, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, that in Christ, what all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. They find their fulfillment in him. And those who are united to him receive the very same promises, the benefits of him. Uh, I didn't have time to put out this little graph in your outlines, this sort of uh, structure that uh, Dr. Jason Derushi in one of his books on biblical theology has this diagram. I'll just state him and see if we can, you can imagine me moving from box to box, okay? So he says, box one. He puts it this way. He says, 
God makes promises to Abraham and his seed. Box two, Christ is the true promised seed. Box three, faith unites us to Christ. Box four, union with Christ makes us seed with him. Box five, we become heirs of the promises. See me later if I went too fast, but I got to move along. (laughs) The promised seed is Christ, and through our union with him, the, the promises become ours as we're joined to him. And that's why he says in verse 29, again, I'll read it again if you look down at verse 29 in the same chapter, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs, heirs of all the promises God made to Abraham according to promise. Our last verse last week was verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the nations, all peoples, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You know, I think one of the confusing things about the Bible and that, that, that happens many times with, as we read the Bible is we read of the different seeds and we think, what, who's he making this promise to? When is it going to be fulfilled? To what extent is it fulfilled? Etc. I remember long ago, and Max, I think you remember this, I learned from a man named John Riesinger. He had this little, a little a booklet. Abraham's four seeds. Abraham's four seeds. Abraham, in other words, had four different lines of descendancy to whom what promises were made. And when we start understanding that, we can start localizing what is being said in the Bible. Who are Abraham's four seeds? See if you can follow me. Again, I didn't give you a chart here, but I put words there. First of all, Abraham's physical seed. He had a natural physical seed, and this includes who? It includes all physical children descended from Abraham's bloodline, which is more than Jews, right? Ishmael, right? Ishmael through Hagar. And God made promises to Hagar that she would have many descendants too. But then there's also who? Isaac and Jacob and Esau, right? So all his physical descendants, which is more than Jews now, now let me ask you, here's the point of it all, are all those people believers? No. No. Not all physical descendants of Abraham received the blessings of Abraham. All right, so now we have a branch. Now we have a branch within his physical descendants. What's the second seed of Abraham? His special physical or natural descendants. What do I mean by special? Well, they're God's chosen. Jacob I've loved. What? Esau I've hated. First, that line began with who? Isaac. He was the child of promise. Not Ishmael. Isaac, and then from from Isaac, we go to Jacob. Even though Esau had priority, he was, the, he was the oldest. And so this is God's special physical seed, right? 
And these, these are ethnic Jews, bloodline. Let me ask you again. Are all ethnic Jews believers? No. They do not all go to heaven. They do not all have the, pl- the blessings and promises of Abraham in their fullest sense, right? They became a special nation, yes. They became a theocracy, yes. They had special privileges. They were given, yes, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, uh, the scriptures, yes, that there was privilege in that, but only a remnant among the physical descendants, special physical descendants, only a remnant of the Jews were believers. Yeah, only a remnant. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed, meaning his promise to Abraham, because here's why, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Whoa, what do you mean? Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, meaning what? His bloodline, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Hmm, what's he getting at? He says this means this, that it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. The children of promise are who? They are the true sons of Abraham who what? Who believe, who have the faith of Abraham. He said that to us in chapter 3. Those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There is an Israel within Israel, is what uh, Paul was saying. And in chapter 2 of Romans, in fact, he put it maybe even more directly, chapter 2, I think it's verse 28. Um, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. So are you a Christian today and you're not, you don't have any Jewish blood in you? Guess what? You're the true Jew. I didn't say that. Paul said that. Take it up with him. <laughs> I just read it to you. Right. So there is his natural physical seed. There is the special natural physical seed, which is who? Which is the Jews, Right. Uh, but not, not, they're not all believers, and, but then there are those who are his spiritual seed, yes, Jew and Gentile, whose hearts have been circumcised, right? The true Jews, believers of all ages, the sons of Abraham, right? Jew and Gentile, this includes what? A David, but it also includes a Ruth, a Moabite. It includes Paul, but also includes a Titus, <laughs> a Greek. This is the third category, that's that spiritual seed. The spiritual seed are the ones who receive the spiritual blessings in their heightened ultimate fulfillment because of the last seed, which is what? The unique seed, which is who? Christ. <laughs> the promises find their fulfillment in Him, and those who are joined to Him receive the blessings of those promises, you see. So this is a way to understand how to read your scriptures. It's a matter of of not confusing things, of asking yourself, 
To whom is he speaking? When is this going to be filled, fulfilled? How? And has the coming of the Messiah affected this in some way? Well, yes. <laughs> it has, you see. We often, I think, confuse these then because we don't take time to do that. Look at chapter 3 again, but now look at verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. Spiritually speaking, he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, you see. So we often confuse, I think, the promises made to Abraham by not trying to distinguish who is the seed that he has in mind and when is it fulfilled and how is it fulfilled and how is it related to the coming of Christ. Uh, some of these promises have been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Those of us who are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and sin, uh, sin no longer enslaves or condemns us. Praise God. That's part of the blessing of justifying righteousness that came to Abraham and it's come in the first coming. Some of the promises are yet to come in the second coming, right? The glorification, we will awake with his nature, made like him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some of the promises are fulfilled exactly as he said, the Spirit has come to indwell us, and some promises are expanded by the coming of Christ. What am I talking about? Abraham and his descendants, and which again is fulfilled in his true descendant, were promised the land of Palestine, of Canaan. Jesus says that Christians inherit the earth. God's design isn't to take these countless millions of believers throughout all the millennia and put them on a few square miles. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. And Paul says, actually, that was embedded in the promise made to Abraham. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. Time is escaping me. So, promises made to Abraham are the root of salvation. The tree grows up. It includes some who are the special physical descendants of Abraham who will believe, Jewish believers, and the nations are grafted into those promises. <laughs> and so God reaches all peoples, and this was always his design. Right? God promises are received only through Christ. And lastly, verses 17 and 18, I'll bring, bring these together. God's promises, they're only received through Christ. And what he's telling us in verse 17 and 18 is they're only received by faith. Because if it's by promise, it has to be by faith. <laughs> if it's by promise, it can't be promise, plus you got to do some stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, then it's not promise. That's what he's saying in verses 17 and 18. 
And he says it clearly, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, God himself, so as to make the promise void. It's not void. For here it is, for here's the reasoning for that. If the inheritance, which is all the blessings of the promise, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. (laughs) What he told us earlier, and we saw last week, was that it, it, it can't, if it's by law, it, it cannot be by faith. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And now he's saying if it's by promise, it can't be by the law. Because to add to the law is to add, excuse me, add to the promise is to add stipulations, is to change the promise. And then it's no longer promise. This is Paul's argument. It's one or the other. And so Paul again tells us to read the Bible indirectly. He's telling us to read the Bible as God's unfolding plan of redemption, progressive revelation, understanding how the promises and the covenants relate to one another and how the coming of Messiah has affected what God has said, moving from promise to fulfillment and still anticipating the greater fulfillment. He tells us that if we read the Bible like that, chronology matters. Chronology matters. And he says that the promise has primacy chronologically, but it also has primacy, priority, theologically, because you cannot merge law into promise without undoing the promise, is what he's telling us. The Judaizers no doubt built their version of the gospel of the Old Testament and from the Old Testament and they placed the law of Moses on the very same level as the promises of Abraham. They put them on the same level and they merged them. In other words, they viewed the law as an addition that came to the promise, so those subpoints, right? Those fine prints and they see the whole thing as a package deal. And Paul reads his Bible very differently. When they merged these two, this was their formula. Faith plus obedience to the law leads to justification. Paul says, no, it's faith leads to justification plus obedience. (laughs) Obedience will be the product through the Holy Spirit. Again, they said faith plus obedience to the law will lead to justification. He says, no, faith alone, you're justified, and that will lead also to obedience. That's chapter 5 of this book. And so they read the Bible wrong, as do so many, even to this day. The promise comes first. He sees the law, that is, Paul sees the law and the promise, the covenant, uh, operating on different terms. Um, And someone might ask, well, then what about the, the, there's other covenants that came after even the Mosaic, right? Are we in the new covenant? (laughs) How does that change anything with Abraham? Or what, what about the, the covenant with David and all that? The Davidic covenant and the new covenant add no stipulations. They fill, simply fill out and expand the nature of the promises in the Abrahamic. The seed that's promised will also be a great king, the Davidic covenant. The seed that is promised will bring about a new covenant which fulfills all the promises, 
not on a material level first, but in a spiritual level. And so God's promises are received only through Christ, who is the prime seed, and Christ is received only through faith. <laughs> and to add the law to it is to change the categories and undo the basis of the blessings of Abraham, which are by grace alone. Let me see if I can find some of the other verses I was thinking about. I think maybe Romans 11.6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. <laughs> Hear that again. <laughs> it's so logical, but we're dull. <laughs> if it is by grace... God's unmerited love, mercy, shown to what? Ill-deserving sinners. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so the, um, the, que the question naturally arises then, and Paul foresees it coming. He says, well, then why in the world the law of Moses? Why, why, was, why did the law come along at all not today we won't talk about that that's too big a question but that's where Paul's going you see but first I just want you to rest in this and understand what he's saying here about the extent of the love and the, and the grace and mercy of God the basis of your relationship with him it's entirely rooted in his promise justifying righteousness what sets us right with God the perfect righteousness of Christ and his atoning death there given to us on the basis of his grace because he made the promise and that promise finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ and through your faith union with Christ God sees you as Christ even on your worst days what he sees you to be is his son. Remember, what's that mean? It means all of us, male, female, are heirs. Heirs of the promises of God. Promise is something you simply embrace. Huh? Right? A promise is something you embrace, you trust. Right? You believe. Some we can wholeheartedly trust that's only God and others we can't years ago we went to Italy and one of the things we did we went to train stations to catch the next train they promised they'd be there at 1130 uh, we went to lunch and came back you know because it never showed at 1130 but Paul wants you to be convinced that with God, there's, he cannot lie. Are you trusting him? See, the law says, do this. The gospel says, accept this. The law says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The gospel says, I will, I have. You trust me. You believe me. 
rest in my promises. Those are two completely different antithetical things. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? You know, people let us down every day. I know some of you are in this room, and you've been let down by people who have made promises to you, maybe vows of marriage, maybe business promises, maybe children, maybe what have you, friendships. You have been hurt. You've been let down. Truth be known, you've broken your promises too, right? We are going to fail. But in Christ, none of these are the basis for God's unending love and devotion to you as your heavenly Father. Your salvation is rooted in His grace alone. Time escapes me. I'll just end by saying this, that when we fail to keep our word, what's at stake? Sometimes it's, 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 uh, it's, our, it's our reputation that's at stake. If God were to fail to keep his word, <laughs> what is at stake then? <laughs> Spurgeon, in his one, a wonderful sermon called All the Promises of God, he says, God's truthfulness, God's power, God's immutability, God's mercy, God's love, they are all bound up in his promises. God himself is at stake if he doesn't keep his word. So whatever your life has brought you, whatever mess you've found yourself in, um, cheer up, you're worse than you thought. And uh, as it's been said, and you're loved more than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm.